Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Have you ever worked with two people who didn't like one another? Like they could not stand each other. Oil and water. You could cut the tension with a knife at meetings between the team. Um, I once worked with two individuals, and uh, somehow I ended up with an office right between theirs. Um, and I would just try to be Switzerland and stay in there with the door shut and, and let life go on. Um, but one day, I was just sitting there at my desk, minding my own business, and I heard a door slam and obscenities being screamed forth uh, from one to the other. Um, and yes, this was at a church. <laughs> um, you see, one of the individuals had gone uh, into the leadership and convinced them that if they would let her do both of the jobs, uh, they could save a lot of money in the youth ministry department. And so they had agreed, cut the cost savings, and were letting him know he was fired, and his response was to come in uh, screaming obscenities. Um, and that was just kind of the final thing that had finally boiled over between these two individuals. And I just kind of closed the door and went back to my desk. Um, so you might imagine my surprise a few years later um, when I heard that they were now working for another church in town as colleagues once again. Um, we had a mutual friend who was overseeing that ministry. And uh, we saw each other at a ministry event. And I was like, hey, um, so these two folks are, are working again. Like, hey, tell me the story. Like, how did they, you know, reconcile? How did they forgive one another? Um, how are they working together? And he goes, oh, they're not. What do you mean? Yeah, they don't, they don't talk to each other. Well, one of these individuals is leading the middle school ministry, and the other individual is leading the high school ministry. They're working with these families. What do you mean they don't interact? He's like, no. It's a rule at staff meetings, at church, during the peace, anything. They don't have to speak, shake hands, make eye contact, anything. That's how we keep the peace. Because it's just like, like think about two racehorses. Like, hey, you've got your area to run, and you go run your race, and you've got your area to run, you go and run your race, and that's how we keep the peace. I don't know about you, that doesn't sound very peaceful. Um, and it's just a reminder, especially as we come to Romans 5 this morning, that the biblical idea of peace is not that open hostility has stopped or that you grit your teeth and pretend to get along. Um, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I, I actually think some people uh, who are Christians still think, man, God just grits his teeth and puts up with me. I don't even know if we really get along, where if you read Romans 5, 1 through 11, you see this beautiful picture of God's love for you, uh, his love for me, and what it means to have peace with God, and even how that leads to peace with one another, not just a truce, not racehorses running in different aisles. Uh, that's not a picture of God's best for us. I think that's a lazy shortcut to peace. Um, and so I want to look at Romans 5, 1 through 11 this morning. Uh, St. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, reminding them of their peace with God, 
uh, reassuring them of God's ongoing work in their lives, even amidst hardship, uh, as the basis for the peace they should have with one another. Because you don't want situations like my former coworkers. Because these are two forgiven adults that could not forgive one another. So uh, first, I want to talk about just the results of uh, our peace, our justification. We'll define that in a minute. But look at the start of Romans 5. Therefore, uh, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Um, And we're jumping in here. This is actually a bridging section. Uh, You've got Romans 1 through 4 operate more or less as a chunk. Romans 5 through 8 operate more or less as a chunk. And this is the bridge between them. Paul has been talking about what it means uh, to be justified. If you look back at Romans 3, it says, There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Um, Something has happened, something that has occurred. Um, And justification is one of those kind of big church words, right? Um, So just to kind of define it a little bit, uh, this is being declared righteous. Um, It's a legal term. It's you were were a defendant. Um, You're being accused. Frankly, you're guilty. And you're going to be declared righteous. Not because of something that you've done, but because of something that someone else has done, namely Jesus. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, he defines justification this way. God's declaration from his position as judge of all the world that someone is in the right despite universal sin. So it's not simply to be declared righteous, but you're declared righteous by God, the righteous judge. (laughs) And you're not declared righteous because you didn't do it. You're actually declared righteous despite your guilt because of what Christ has done. That's the context of justification. And so Paul, throughout the book of Romans, uh, you see him imploring them to place their faith in uh, the crucified and risen Jesus, who has died and rose from the dead for their justification. And then you also find him at times um, reminding them that they have been justified in the same way. And so groups that are at odds with one another, people that are at odds with one another, uh, my former coworkers, you would want to go into them and say, hey, um, do you remember your sin? (laughs) Do you know how great the forgiveness of God towards you? Now could that overflow to uh, other people? He's often writing to Jews and Gentiles going, hey, one of you thinks you're better than the other, but we're all justified by faith. Um, we all came through the same front door. Um, you know, it's the idea of like, man, we all wake up and put our pants on one, one leg at a time. Like we're all coming to this on a level playing field. And that's often how Paul will talk about justification. Hey, if you're in the church, you've all been forgiven a lot. And so now how does that make its way out into peace with one another? Um, because through Jesus, those who are justified by faith have innumerable rewards. Uh, First, we have peace with God. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, Second, Paul says we have access to the grace of God and we can stand in it solidly. We're on firm ground with the Lord because of what his son has done. And then third, he says because of this, we can presently rejoice 
even in the midst of suffering, because we know what God has done for us. We know what God is doing for us, even in the midst of hardship. And we have hope for the glory uh, that is to come. So first, peace with God. Uh, Peace with God. So uh, Paul's writing this to the church in Rome, right? Um, And what you may know is that in the first century, uh, peace was a big deal. In the Roman culture, peace was a huge deal. They talked about something called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And what they meant by the Roman peace is we have conquered the whole world. Uh, At the edge of our sword, we have brought peace. And no one dares fight back. Um, That was the peace of Rome. Um, And again, he's writing this to Rome. And I think that Paul will, throughout Romans, uh, throw out these terms that would have been common. Because he wants them to know there's a distinction. There's a different, better kind of peace achieved in a different, better way by a different, better king over a different and better kingdom. What they had was just a parody. It was just a shortcut where they had defeated everybody um, compared to the Lord Jesus who receives defeat upon himself and triumphs through the cross as he is then vindicated and raised uh, to life. That was one kind of context. When you heard peace, that's what you would think of. Um, The other thing that they're often thinking of is just uh, if if you're a Hebrew uh, person, if you're an Israeli, you would hear peace in the sense of shalom. Um, and that's one of those words, I mean, sometimes I really like that we have good translations. Um, occasionally, I think there's actually like Hebrew and Greek words that are good to know. Uh, shalom is one of those words, the Hebrew word for peace. Because it doesn't just mean the cessation or absence of hostilities. Um, we think of peace as in, okay, they're not at war. Uh, shalom Uh, in the Hebrew thought, was beyond that. It was positive. It it was, you have peace, you have well-being, you have prosperity, even salvation. Something has happened that is good and beautiful, and we see you flourish within it. Shalom. Um, In November, we were in uh, Israel, and actually they have these great little things you can buy, these plaques. I should have bought one. And they just say, shalom, (laughs) y'all. Because all the tourists and all the pilgrims will go and buy these little shalom, y'all. But it's true. You want to extend goodness. You want to extend peace. You want to extend well-being. You want to hope for the good of those who you're talking to. Shalom. Um, And that's not just an inner sense of tranquility. Like you could go sit in the garden uh, for like 30 minutes and you would have a type of tranquility. Um, You would have some, some moment of quiet. But this peace is something even more robust. Um, It's it's peace with God. It's a peace you can have with your neighbor. Um, Friends, it's even a peace you can have within yourself. Because we often find ourselves at odds with the Lord or at odds with our neighbors. And I think most of us, if we look internally, we don't always like what we see. And so we can have peace, shalom, wholeness. Um, Not the peace of God, but peace with God. Um, And I don't know if we always think in those terms that we have been at odds with the Lord. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, in Mere Christianity said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. 
we're at odds with the Lord, and he welcomes us. Each one of us needs that peace with God, and the overall teaching of the Bible is that we couldn't actually procure this for ourselves. Um, It took the Lord Jesus coming, dying for us, being raised for us. Jesus himself is our peace. Shalom. All right, so the second thing our justification gives us, not just peace with God, uh, but access. Paul writes, also through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Um, The imagery is interesting here. It's almost like you get a backstage pass. You can now go somewhere that you previously could not go, and you're allowed to be there. Um, we, we heard uh, a little bit, uh, you know, if you think about the Old Testament, um, the presence of God is not widespread and open, is it? The presence of God, uh, one person went there once a year, the high priest, and they tied a rope on him like this in case he dropped dead so they could haul him out. Um, you couldn't go in there. You couldn't go uh, near the throne of God before the throne of God like we just sang. And Paul says, now you can go somewhere where you previously couldn't. And you can be there and you can stand there and stay there and you are welcomed in, even though it was previously uh, off limits. That's part of the gift. That's part of the grace that we've received is we've received access. Um, When we moved uh, back here from Texas to Georgia, um, one of the first things I did was to go visit the UGA bookstore because I had to get gear, right? Um, uh, we actually, well, say, do you know we had a crucifer at the first service with an Alabama Crimson Tide shirt on? Yeah, um, if you, Jesus loves everyone. Um, we actually joked that we could do a fundraiser for acolyte robes after that, but you know. Um, but no, I was back, like I had to gear up, right? And so I parked there by take. This was before they had done some of the improvements, and I noticed there was a gate open into the stadium. Well, you know what I did. <laughs> Went just kind of sauntering in, looking around. I was like, I'm going to go out on the field. <laughs> I haven't been out on the field since we beat Tennessee, <laughs> and we tore the goalpost down. <laughs> So went out onto the field, and I went out to the 50, and I'm like, you know, taking pictures, and um, I'm not supposed to be there. And of course, within a few minutes, what happened? Someone walked out, hey, you're not supposed to be there. You need to leave. And they should have, because I didn't have a pass. I wasn't cleared to be there. I shouldn't have been there, but I was. Um, What Paul is saying is that you actually have like a pass. You're allowed to come into the presence of Almighty God and stay there. No one can say, hey, you need to leave. You're not supposed to be here because we now have access uh, to God. Um, I saw a video a couple years ago. Um, If you look it up on YouTube, I think it's under BBC Dad. Um, And there's a video of this professor. His name is Robert Kelly. He's a political scientist. Um, He's a specialist in Korean politics. And BBC World is doing this interview with him from his study. And this is like pre-COVID. This, you know, no one did these kind of video type interviews. But you see him just sitting there at his desk. He's very, you know, tie on, very studious. Um, and if you watch, eventually in comes a little kid. And they're walking right behind his desk. And like he's trying to just lock in and keep it together. Um, and it's clearly like he sees the child out of the corner of his eyes. Like maybe it'll go away. I don't know. Um, 
And after this first little toddler comes in, here comes little sibling. And they're one of those, I don't, they're not like a UFO, but it's like, you know, the circle plastic things that you like jump kids in, just comes in bouncing right behind him. Um, and then you know what came in next, right? The frantic mother. <laughs> Let me get y'all and get y'all out of here. And by that point, he had just completely lost it. Um, the video went viral everywhere. And uh, they did a follow-up interview with him. And they were essentially like, hey, you were very calm in that scenario. Like, you hadn't closed the door. You didn't snap at your kids. Like, what, what's going on? Um, and what this father said, uh, that's always interesting. He says, I don't want my kids to think um, that they can't come in to the room, that they don't have access to me. They have full access, um, and they can always come in, and they're always welcome. Um, and I thought, man, that is a picture um, of us, where the father said, hey, come on in. Am I being distracting? Am I making, come on in, you are welcome. Um, I think about a church like St. Thomas, man, we, we actually love uh, when kids are in the service. Like, y'all are welcome. Like, we want you here, and you enrich things. Um, just like those kids coming into the BBC video. Um, we have access that is unimaginable uh, that we never had before. That's one of the results of our justification. Um, the third thing we're told is that by our justification, we have reason to rejoice in hope. Um, look what Paul writes. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, uh, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Um, I like this part. And, you know, Paul, uh, he loves big, long sentences. You probably have seen that if you've spent any time in these New Testament letters. And, you know, sometimes what Paul will do is he'll take an inventory. So he'll name everything that could be possible. So, like, if he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he's, oh, let's lay them all out. Um, sometimes he'll talk about sins. Let's just name them all. Um, other times, Paul sets up these little divine dominoes and just lets them go. This happened to this, that happened to this, that happened to this. And so he's taking them to something they're experiencing, their actual suffering, actual hardship. And he goes, let me show you the domino of how God can use this and how God wants to use this. He goes, this suffering can produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Um, and I was going to say, there's part of me that doesn't like this teaching because I don't like suffering. Do you? But it's reassuring. And it makes total logical sense that Paul has told them all the great benefits they've received of God who loves them, and they might go, sweet, life is going to be great now. It's going to be easy, <laughs> easy going. And Paul goes, all these good things are true, and actually, let me tell you how God is going to use even hard things in your life. Um, the reality of suffering, of hardship, of trial should not be seen as evidence that God does not love us. Our hope is secure that God will use those things to develop and refine us because of his great love for us. He even underscores it. When all this is happening, God is going to pour out uh, the gift of his Holy Spirit into your life so you would know his love. You wouldn't doubt it, that God is with you when you're going through those things. 
So he then moves in verses 6 through 11. Um, he's going to reassure them of their reconciliation. And he just tells this incredible story. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for, perhaps for a good person one would dare die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What, what's Paul doing here? Well, he's doing two things. One, he's reminding them of their spiritual history. Um, he wants them to remember who they were apart from Jesus. Um, and he's not saying that to put them down or to shame them in any way. He actually even says, you know, hey, we're not doing this to shame you. Um, we want to actually root you so you can now live for the Lord and you can rejoice in hope. Um, he's reminding us that we are reconciled. Um, and there's this clear before and after. He says, before we were weak, ungodly, unrighteous sinners. That's not a good list. Um, and I think when I first heard these verses, I was maybe only told that part. <laughs> Um, you were weak and ungodly and unrighteous and sinners. It's sometimes used that way to kind of condemn or even to diagnose our problem with sin. But Paul's doing this here to actually encourage them. He's like, if God loved you that much when you were those things, can you now imagine how much he loves you now that you know him and you've seen what he's done for you? I mean, if when you were a complete stranger to God, he actually loved you enough to send his son, then can you trust him in present hardship that he is working for your good? And can you trust the future glory that is to come? Even though you were sinners. And you're still in an ongoing struggle with sin, and by God's grace, that will keep improving um, until we are in his presence. Um, and when I say sin, I don't know what you think of when you think of sin. Um, it's not just a list of rights and wrongs. Um, I think primarily, especially if you read Romans, uh, sin is a, is a failure of worship. It's a failure, it's a type of idolatry. Um, it's not having that shalom with, with the Lord. It, it's, it's being off. I'll give you an illustration. Um, Suppose I was a proficient woodworker. Some of you are proficient woodworkers. And suppose I was so good with my hands and woodworking that I began making instruments. Maybe making violins, making guitars. And I had a workshop, and it was full of these beautifully crafted instruments that were designed to be played in a certain way, and they could make music. Uh, sometimes that's how I think about creation. <laughs> Is God the master craftsman? He, he's creating these things um, to be played in this certain way to bring beauty, goodness, and life to the world. Um, but imagine if you came into that workshop, and let's say there was a guitar, like Chris's guitar over there, um, and you picked it up, and you're just like, good, I have this. Um, I'm going to go over to the intramural fields because I have a tennis match, and I don't have my racket. And you take that guitar 
and you just start playing tennis with it. Forehand, backhand, serve, volley, what's going to happen? You're going to destroy it. And part of what's happening is you're not actually using this as it was intended. This is a, a beautiful, crafted work of art with a purpose. And you're taking that and using it for something completely contrary um, with no respect for it. Um, when I think about sin at its essence, that's what we do. Um, we take things that are masterly made and crafted in the image of God that have purpose and intent, and we take those and use it for other things without respect uh, for its creator or intent. That's sin in a nutshell. Um, and it's, it's, you know, if you saw someone do that, you would gasp, wouldn't you? You might even intervene. Chris would definitely intervene. If Chris saw you playing uh, tennis with his guitar, he'd be like, hey, let me stop that. Um, it's, it's that shocking. Um, and, and you definitely wouldn't think, oh, good, now God loves me for No. You'd be like, I'm completely at odds with this person. Well, Paul says while you were out there playing tennis with his handcrafted guitar, he decided, well, I'm going to send my son for you because I love you. And I want to bring you back in the right relationship with me. Um, and the rest of this just kind of points out that if all that is true, then we all have been forgiven so much, could we extend that to one another? Could you become this agent and ambassador of reconciliation? You notice reconciliation comes up about three times here at the end. Um, instead of being like my coworkers, who are Christians, who have been forgiven and wouldn't even speak with one another. That's, that's not good. Those who have been forgiven much, we've learned about forgiveness, and we can then extend it uh, to others. Um, a few things in conclusion as we kind of think about this. Uh, one, it's just a great passage. Like, we love the whole Bible, right? Man, sometimes you just get a passage, you're like, man, this is gold. Um, and this is one of those. Uh, Basil the Great, who is a church father, I think you can talk about church fathers on Father's Day, right? Is that okay? So there are many passages which set forth with clarity and splendor the great and effable benevolence of God in freely pardoning our sins and granting us the means and the power of performing righteous acts for the glory of God and His Christ and the hope of receiving eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, this, there's so much packed in here about who we were apart from God, what He's done for us in Jesus, and now how uh, we're able to live and, and the grace and the access that we now have. Um, and there's a call throughout here to be reconciled to the Lord and then to extend that to one another. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll close with this illustration. There's a, um, there's a, a Russian uh, saint from the 19th century, John of Kronstadt. Um, and he served at a time in the church where society was a mess. Um, there's never a time when things are, there's not like a golden age when you look back, right? Um, society was a mess, um, Cities were overrun with rampant alcohol abuse. Um, I always think of this as like, a, like, you know, like you read Charles Dickens, and you just have these, man, people are just awash in bathtub gin, and they're just, um, you know, they're not living the way that you would want them to. They are out playing tennis with guitars. <laughs> um, and it's doing, it's doing real damage. Um, and sadly, when that was kind of raging in the, in the cities, 
Um, you know what most of the clergy were doing? Staying in their churches and locking the doors. We don't want any of that riffraff in here. Um, they might mess things up. They might make us uncomfortable. Um, and this one priest, John of Kronstadt, he was known uh, for not waiting in the church, but for going out into the streets um, and not avoiding the pain and the mess, but actually embracing it. Um, he would be seen all the time just picking up, you know, hungover, um, these, these drunk, out-of-their-mind men and women and embracing them, caring for them, helping them not fall and, like, hit their face. And he would over and over tell them, uh, this is beneath your dignity. Uh, you were meant to house the fullness of God. Um, and I love that because he wasn't afraid. He went out, he would embrace the mess of these people, and he would see them in a redemptive light. He would say, hey, you, you know, you're not made for this. Uh, we don't go play tennis with, with guitars. No, you were meant to house the fullness of God. You were meant to be at peace with the Lord, to have access, to come and be in his presence. Um, and that he would help nurse them back to health and, and share the gospel both in word um, and deed um, in, a, in a way that's remarkable. And so when I read a passage like this, I, I think of that, that Russian priest and go, man, some of us, we're like the, the person who's a mess lying on the road. And we need to know that the Father is ready to embrace us. To say, you were meant to house the fullness of God. Uh, some of us remember what it was like when we first had that light bulb go off um, and got pulled out of that muck in the mire. I said, hey, no, no, you were meant to house the fullness of God. And then others of us need to kind of look around and go, man, who am I called to minister to? Who is a mess? And can I see them the way God sees them? Can I love them the way God loves them? Um, can I extend the grace of how he has loved and forgiven me to them? Um, and then go out and do so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.